Welcome to FACL, Ontario's podcast. FACL is a coalition of Asian-Canadian legal professionals working to promote equity, justice, and opportunity for Asian-Canadian legal professionals and a wider community. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi, listeners. This is Michelle Cito and Andrea Lee, your co-hosts for the FACL Ontario podcast series. Today, we have a special guest joining us in our conversation about anti-Black racism. We have Anthony Morgan, a leading racial justice lawyer and the manager of the City of Toronto's Confronting Anti-Black Racism, or the CABR unit. Anthony frequently speaks and comments about issues concerning race and racism and has been featured in the Globe and Mail, National Post, Toronto Star, and CNN. Welcome to our show, Anthony. Thanks for having me. So 2020 has been an unprecedented year. We saw and are continuing to live through a global pandemic, which has disproportionately affected racialized minorities, including the Black community. We saw a turbulent year of protests in the U.S., Canada, and worldwide, really, which were sparked by the deaths of Black people at the hands of police. You are the manager at the City of Toronto's Confronting Anti-Black Racism Unit. Why was CABR formed? So the Confronting Anti-Black Racism Unit was established primarily as a way to support the City of Toronto towards the implementation of the Toronto Action Plan to Confront Anti-Black Racism. Now, the Action Plan itself came out of years, decades, in fact, of resistance and organizing from Black communities wanting to see change in the City of Toronto. But the real catalytic moment happened in March 2016 when Black Lives Matter Toronto staged a protest outside of Toronto Police Headquarters for two weeks, outside in front of the essentially the foyer of that space. But it wasn't just Black Lives Matter Toronto organizers that were holding that space for two weeks. It was actually hundreds of allies, organizers, and supporters from different walks, different experiences, different professions that came out and joined them in solidarity for that two weeks of protest. And there was uh, and it, there was inclement weather. It was, it was quite cold. There was sleet, hail, and snow. And all of that came together. It's important to mention that because it it made the city and city leadership pay attention in a different kind of way because uh, Mayor Tory and different leaders of the city said, okay, you know, we've seen Black protests before. There have been ongoing issues, especially around police violence or the lack of accountability when there's police violence against Black communities, but we haven't seen it like this. So we need to undertake a process to really take this seriously. And so that led the city to bring together Black leaders from across uh, Black communities in Toronto to say, okay, how do we respond to these specific calls for police accountability? But also uh, because the protests aimed not just to speak to accountability, but uh, bettering the lives and well-being of Black folks in the area of education, employment, housing, healthcare, child welfare, policing and the justice system. So with those meetings coming together, ultimately what was determined is that the city would adopt a action plan to address anti-Black racism. And so that action plan was officially adopted by city council in December 2017. And the Confronting Anti-Black Racism Unit, which aims to support the city and its divisions and agencies of the city, so CTC, uh, Toronto Police, Toronto Community Housing, Toronto Public Library, uh, and so forth, uh, we support that implementation and, and we were established in May 2018. So I guess now we're in year three of the action plan. 
And as what you said, it was catalyzed partly because there was just so, it was police violence. There was so much well-documented evidence showing that there's a systemic racial profiling issue in the city of Toronto and that Black communities were being over-policed. So what has been done with respect to this specific issue now that we're entering into, or now that we're in year three of our action plan? Yeah, and so there there have been a number of initiatives that have been undertaken to support uh, bettering outcomes for Black communities, everything from uh, increasing opportunities for Black youth to get access to employment when they've been saddled with uh, non-conviction records or even criminal records because of their disproportionate contact with police. There have been uh, initiatives that the Toronto Police Service has undertaken in response directly to the action plan to increase and enhance the ways in which they're communicating the rights to civilians around uh, their interactions with civilians. Uh, there have also been uh, ongoing conversations to deepen the level of community accountability that we see within policing systems. And so, for instance, the Confronting Anti-Black Racism Unit, now we are a part of uh, the Toronto Police Service Board's uh, Anti-Racism Advisory Panel. We co-chair that panel now, and that panel is responsible for overseeing a number of uh, police reform and uh, frankly, detasking and, and depolicing initiatives uh, that the Toronto Police Service Board has undertaken. And so th those are the, the, the major things that have happened with respect to policing in general. But I would, I would say that much of the work is still to come uh, as it relates to police reform and, and responding specifically to those needs. And why that is, is because we in serving Black communities have recognized and, and, and know that when it comes to the challenges uh, black communities have had with policing, those are kind of downstream. They are largely a result of socio-systemic neglect and breakdown in the areas of, as I've mentioned before, education, employment, housing, healthcare. And so where we've prioritized uh, our actions and activities is on uh, supporting black communities in those areas. So increasing access to food, uh, supporting access to housing and shelter, um, making sure youth jobs uh, and entrepreneurial opportunities are being protected, supported, and promoted for Black communities and, and things of, of that nature to create healthier conditions where the need or, or the, the, the supposed need uh, for police contact uh, diminishes. That's right, Anthony. I think you've uh, focused a lot on, um, I think you've said, de-policing activities. And we've heard recently in the media a lot about the slogan, defund the police. President Obama uh, stated that the slogan tends to polarize rather than start off more inclusive discussions. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think it, it polarizes just as much as um, give me freedom or give me death or no taxation without representation. These, of course, are, are slogans that led to the American Revolution, the very creation of the state that President Obama ended up leading. So, yeah, there, there are times where slogans are they're supposed to, in a kind of way, be polarizing. Uh, and so Black Lives Matter, you can say the same thing. Um, or I don't know more within the Canadian context. Of course, it's polarizing, but it's supposed to create clear lines uh, in terms of pushing folks to determine what side of history they want to stand on. And so when it comes to the calls to defund the police, I, interesting enough, before the, this moment, before the upswing of Black Lives Matter uh, in this year in 2020, in 
October 2019, I delivered a TED Talk where it was essentially calling for for that, a reallocation, a, a fundamental deep reallocation of, of funding from policing into community and health uh, and, and collective well-being services, agencies, and opportunities. And so it's actually been really interesting because um, while there, there was a lot of talk around uh, or there was some interest in what I, when I shared, the, the idea came at a time where I don't think the public was really ready for it, honestly. And so there are a lot of folks who, who just, they, it made them feel very uneasy. And so uh, now it's really remarkable to see some of the folks who are offering thoughts about, oh, well, it was a great talk, but I don't know. I don't think we're ready for this. This is, this is a bit ambitious or, or it's utopian. And now <laughs> The public conversation is so interestingly uh, connected to thinking through this question in, in important ways. And so I think it, it is pushing us in the right direction because we in our society have been overly reliant on policing and police services for uh, for services, supports. And when it comes down to it, when it comes to public finance, we have finite dollars. And so if we're going to have such a disproportionately high number of our dollars go into policing. That means that we have to accept substandard healthcare, substandard housing, substandard education, substandard transit. But that's a political choice that we don't need to make. And so uh, our work actually in the action plan, which as I mentioned was passed in December, 2017, in a kind of way without using the language of defunding the police, anticipated uh, a need because of black communities to call for it, a need for finding alternatives and alternatives that are less costly and diminish the amount of contact between police and civilians in, in unnecessary contacts that often lead to death or violation of, of rights. And so I think the movement is, is welcome. The call for change is needed. And I think it's making us collectively reflect in our democratic society about what, what really matters and what's most important. When we look at budget lines, I think there, any, I think reasonable and fair person will say, okay, there's, there's a significant imbalance here. And the, this call for change has really been loud and clear, I think, this past summer. You know, we refer to this as the year of the protest, the summer of protests. These protests weren't just in Canada. They were in the Canada, U.S., really around the world. And they were sparked by the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, just to name a few. Are we at a point, are we at the tipping point? Or are we at where, are we at a point where we can actually really see real change, like transformative change? Or because, you know, in 2016, that was when the first Black Lives Matter protest kind of happened in Toronto. But then it got kind of quiet, at least in the national media. So where, where are we? Yeah, that's a great question. I think we are at a tipping point. I don't know if we're at the tipping point, I would say. I would say we're at a tipping point because there's a level of uptake in conversations around addressing anti-Black racism that even when I speak to elders in Black communities is, is not like anything they've seen before. And so this is a decades long shift or, or uh, a shift that hasn't happened in decades, I should say, um, where there's there are organizations, agencies, governments, officials, even people within pop culture that are naming and addressing anti-Black racism in a way that before this moment would have been seen as impolite, overly dis, uh, divisive, um, aggressive, or just too controversial. 
but now there is a level at which organizations have said, yeah, you know what? Yes, this started with a conversation around policing, but our organizations and agencies can do a lot better when it comes to hiring, employment, creating cultures of inclusion for Black workers, uh, bettering outcomes within uh, within media, within technology, within politics, uh, and across the board, across various sectors. And so in that way, I do think we're, we're at a tipping point, but I think the tipping point is probably still yet to come, or somebody might argue that it we won't know until a couple of years to see if the gains or the shifts or those statements around Black Lives Matter are actually put to action and folks are really held accountable. What will really determine uh, that shift is, yes, those two things, I would say, if we're seeing better outcomes for Black communities, which will take time to see, and secondly, whether or not folks are actually being held accountable when their organizations, uh, companies, uh, groups are or have been seen to engage in anti-Black racism. Is anybody held accountable for that? And that doesn't necessarily mean fired. That we don't, it doesn't have to be that extreme, but uh, it, there is there tends to be a diminishing of of importance or emphasis on addressing anti-Black racism, or historically there has been. But I think this moment uh, is creating a lot of space for folks to reflect and revisit how they approach issues of anti-Black racism. Uh, one by just by naming anti-Black racism is is a is a new phenomenon for many organizations and agencies. So I think the potential for change is higher than it's been for a long time. But whether or not we will actually see fundamental shifts in the way in which Black communities experience life in the city and in this country and across uh, the world is, is that remains to be seen. So how does this uh, your unit, the Confronting Anti-Black Racism? unit track progress in you know food security housing better opportunities for you know black entrepreneurs and you know policing reform and accountability how is that tracked to ensure that this is not just you know a protest statement this is going to be changed yeah that's a great question thanks for asking so within the action plan there are 22 recommendations and 80 actions and so those recommendations and actions come from the voice of black communities saying we want to see these particular shifts and change and so measuring progress and change is uh, largely looking at those specific actions and uh, first year often benchmarking or, or creating a benchmark gathering data on what we have in first year which is what our first year of the, the team was focused on, and then uh, scaling up year over year. Uh, but there are also one-time actions and initiatives that, that Black communities called for. So for instance, um, somewhat sadly and surprisingly, there, there was not a, uh, a Black staff network at the City of Toronto. So there wasn't a network for us members of the Black community who worked at the City of Toronto to come together uh, to just have conversations about their experiences, offer uh, support for each other, but also share professional development opportunities. So that was created. So tracking progress on that, for instance, is a lot easier. We didn't have it, now we have it. And and so the, the Black staff, um, this Black staff network continues to be, and, and now has actually developed into a very strong organization with its uh, with a, a very clear mandate and, and bringing the, uh, upwards of 8,000 black uh, workers in the city together to support each other. So there are things like that, but then there are also um, 
job opportunities that are that need to be extended to uh, black community members, especially black youth. And so what we did in first year is, is track what we're doing to create opportunities in that respect, uh, particularly around how much funding we're offering to uh, programs and then what is that translating into in terms of actual jobs. And so just continuing to monitor that and make sure that it, it, it's growing. Uh, are, we're proud to note that since the start of, or the establishment of our team, uh, we've supported the increase of some $17 million going to different black serving organizations since just May, 2018, to ensure that there are stronger outcomes for black communities. It's not just a dollar and cents thing, but of course we can do more often when we have more, more resources. And so, uh, Really, the, the tracking is largely based on looking at the particular actions, seeing what Black communities called for, understanding what the immediate benchmark is, and then tracking it year over year to make sure that there are, there are increases. Uh, and so it, it, because there are 80 actions, it's, it's difficult to create a, a overarching uh, analysis of, of progress, but on the, on the different actions and activities, we're really pleased with the progress we've made. Overall, we're about 50% into implementation of those 80 actions. And so that's that's also one of the major ways that, that we uh, track progress. So yeah, we're, we're pleased and happy with that. Yeah. That's great. That's amazing. You know, we've actually talked about racism and recent national and international events on sort of a, a, a broader uh, overarching way. And you started to get into identifying specifics from the action plan, which I think is very helpful. Um, and then when it comes down to an even more personal level, I think our listeners could actually benefit from, you know, some examples of ways they can address these issues in their own personal circumstances. Or, you know, for example, if they have faced racism, you know, what are some things that they can do if they've experienced this in their own personal lives? Sure. So uh, one of the things I would uh, turn folks to learning about how the city is addressing some of these some of these expressions of anti-black racism, or if you've experienced it yourself, are on our website. Um, there are a number of different resources for having conversations around anti-black racism, for understanding how to develop a, a plan for your team, for your organization, for your office on addressing anti-Black racism. And so you can find that at toronto.ca forward slash A as in Apple, B as in Bob, R as in resource. Um, so that that is something that I encourage folks to look out, to look out for or to look to um, as a way to enhance our general competency and understanding of, on how to address anti-Black racism. But one of the first things I think beyond looking at that list of resources, I would say is um, one, making sure that we're taking a moment to create space for the conversation around what anti-Black racism is and, and isn't. And I think a large part of why these conversations are so difficult around uh, issues of anti-Black racism is, is one, we're socialized not to talk about anti-Black racism because so much of our Canadian collective identity hangs on us being morally superior to the United States when it comes to questions of race. And so we start to challenge our very sense of self as what it means to be Canadian when we are too loud when it comes to anti-Black racism. And, and too loud can simply be saying to a colleague, to a friend, or to someone in community, hey, that that actually, that didn't sit well with me. That felt like you were reinforcing a stereotype or I felt 
uh, uncomfortable. I felt othered in a kind of way because of who I am, because of my racial background. Um, can we have a conversation about this? Or is there a way for us to um, sort of unpack this a little? Because I want to make sure that we're creating a healthier space for for everyone, but especially for for Black folks. And so we don't we don't have that conversation enough within within our spaces. And so I think one of the the important things to think about is when somebody experiences this, if it's a Black person or or someone witnesses a Black person experience something like this, think a lot about the climate. Think a lot about. Um, what the person is actually experiencing. I think the individual, if it's them ex- themselves experiencing it, I think it's also okay to take a moment and step back and step out of the situation. I think this moment has made a lot of folks feel like they need to call it out immediately on the spot. And some sometimes that's absolutely okay, that's appropriate, that's necessary, but we're not all there. We're not at that same spot. And our organizations, if we're being real, are not always ready to hold that in the way that is appropriate, frankly. Um, and so what I mean by that is that that might turn into uh, more of a challenge for the person than it needed to because they're taken aback. They don't. The organization doesn't have a culture of inclusion in terms of its con- conversations and understanding around anti-Black racism. And so they could pivot to a point of defensiveness um, if more a an approach that uh, took more time to think about how, where this organization is in its journey on addressing anti-Black racism and responding in a way that's reflective of that without giving that organization a pass, if that makes sense. And so that doesn't mean be silent because your organization does not have these conversation. conversations. It means thinking about the very specific nuances of your organization and thinking, well, what's most effective when an issue of of sexual harassment comes up? What does that look like? When an issue of Islamophobia comes up, what does it look like in terms of how, how it's addressed? When an issue of, I don't know, ableism comes up or uh, anti-Asian racism or anti-Indigenous, how, do, how does the organization address that? And then thinking about what those channels look like, who's involved in those conversations, and then, and then trying to pursue your uh, your matter in that in that same way, or have the conversation in a way that that's reflective of how the organization tends to address those other issues. That's a long answer, but I, I hope that was <laughs> helpful. Yeah, that was helpful. It actually harkens back to something that we heard from faculty board members Leonard Kim and Gerald Chan in a podcast that we did with them a few months ago, um, and you know we were asking about specific examples of you know, some of the, some of their experiences. And Leonard had had an experience, you know, he, he, he works as a lawyer and uh, he had an experience in court that in his view was an uncomfortable situation. Um, And so sometimes it can happen to you, you know, obviously outside of your organization, whether, you know, the comment comes from a client, whether it's the action of the court or, or something that's outside of your own personal workspace. And would your suggestions be any different in those situations? Yeah, I think context does matter, but I think in principle, it wouldn't, it wouldn't shift so much to think about what is the appropriate way of addressing matters of concern in this particular space and how does it tend to be most effective? And, and following that course. When I think about 
particular experiences that that we can have as lawyers, as racialized lawyers, especially within this profession, um, and moments where you have to think about do I or don't I or how do I or how don't I address this matter. It makes me think about one of the last cases uh, or last appearances I had before joining the city of Toronto. So, of course, I, I as a manager in the Confronting Anti-Black Racism Unit, I'm not acting as as counsel. Uh, and so I'm not, I'm not in court. I'm not engaging uh, in that way. Um, but thinking back to my experience, I was uh, appearing and I appeared, uh, it was a, a routine appearance to, uh, to reschedule a matter. And I, I have a practice of not wearing ties, neckties, unless I really have to. I have pictures wearing ties, but generally folks know me or see me. I very rarely wear a tie. I'll wear a nice shirt. I can wear a nice suit, but I don't wear a tie. And for me, and it's a very personal thing, it's not an all black people thing. So I don't want anybody to understand it that way. But for me, ties, they do make me think about the practice of, of nooses around black people's necks. And so for me personally, I've just said, if I can avoid wearing a tie, I'm not going to, I'm not going to wear a tie. Uh, I just, why would I voluntarily put this <laughs> not around my neck, thinking about the history about Black people and knots around their necks. Um, but of course, there's my how I personally feel. And then I, when we're appearing at court for men to dress what's, what looks professional is often wearing a tie. So what ended up happening is I had this appearance and I, I had appeared actually twice before, before the same judge no tie, but was really well dressed. The client had no issue with it, never even mentioned it. It was an indigenous client that might have something to do with it. I think notions of what's professional, what's not, changes based on lived experience. Uh, and he always felt like he was being properly represented. But in my last appearance, uh, the judge um, said, uh, I expect the next time that you come before me, you'll come before, you'll come before me with a tie. And I just stayed silent. Um, not wanting to commit to uh, to that. And then the judge repeated that. And he said, uh, you do understand me, Mr. Morgan. And so I was like, yes, uh, I understand you, uh, your worship. Um, but in that moment, I, I really, I also had to think, okay, what's, I don't want to, dis- I don't want my personal feelings with respect to wearing a tie to impact what happens for this client. Um, and so I, if I did carry out the next time, I probably and honestly would have worn a tie. Some people might disagree with that, but it's it, it is it does remind me of those moments, those times where we as lawyers have to make these decisions for ourselves, knowing that we have a responsibility to our clients uh, while we're still people, while we're still racialized people. And so how to hold that tension, I think we're all trying to work it out in different circumstances. And so it might not be as public as that. I think I, part of why I say that too is it felt very... Um, I did feel very exposed. It's like, do I do I stand here on the record, explain why I don't wear a tie, or do I just swallow it and just like get through the experience? I have my new dates. That's what I came here to do. So uh, it was it was a, a tough thing to do. Obviously, I decided uh, efficiency. Let's just get the dates and then and then yeah, move on. Um, but yeah, who knows? In in another time, and other people might make a different decision. That's right. I think uh, you've probably just within your story summed up, you know, what happens, the thought process that goes on in a lot of people's minds because they are in, you know, high pressure situations like they're in court, they're in front of a room full of people, you know, they're addressing the person who's going to make a decision in their matter. 
Um, you know, do they want to raise this issue at this time or is this something that um, can can wait for another time? Or is this an issue that you can take back to organizations um, such as FACL or Cable or, or Saba and say, this came up during court. And I think it's probably a common experience that others have felt. Can we perhaps approach it in a collective way and get that education out there so that it is possible that it won't happen again? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I'm really thankful for this conversation that we're, that we're having because I think it it allows us to recognize how normal these experiences are. I think often as racialized lawyers, we think I'm the only one experiencing it, or you know that it happens, but we don't always have these deliberate spaces to talk about it. Uh, and also across different racialized experiences too. So uh, for me, it's my experience and connection to thinking about the histories of nooses. Uh, there, I imagine, of course, there's some similar ways in which Asian Canadian lawyers have these uh, experiences or interactions with the justice system that because the system has been overwhelmingly white and male and there's a level of privilege and, and all that connection to it, that there are, there are things that the system is not seeing as particular challenges or issues um, that actually are not necessary. They're just part of how we've done things. And so I'm really happy for this conversation where we can share, build and connect uh, in ways that I think ultimately help us better support and protect the public, which is what we're what we're here to do as lawyers. Yes, and that actually takes me to my next question. So you've done a lot of anti-black uh, racism training with individuals, organizations, and corporations across a wide range of sectors. Um, is there a common starting point for your training sessions without giving away all of the secret uh, <laughs> to your, to your uh, training? But is there a common starting point um, and then a key piece of advice that you always give? This is a, another really great question. All of them have been great, but I really like this question. Um, uh, I would say the starting point, yes, is always the definition of anti-Black racism. What are we actually talking about? There are a range of ways in which folks, uh, Black and not Black, say what anti-Black racism is and is not. And I think because often we're moving through the world with different definitions of what anti-Black racism is, we can speak past each other um, when it comes to addressing it. But in all the sessions that I deliver, I use the definition that comes uh, actually out of the work of uh, initially the African Canadian Legal Clinic, and then it got taken up by the province of Ontario and the city of Toronto adopted it as its official definition. And the, the uh, federal government has actually essentially used the, the same They've tweaked a few words, but by and large, the definition that, that I run with that I think is most effective for addressing systemic change is uh, anti-Black racism is policies and practices that are embedded within Canadian institutions that reflect and or reinforce biases, attitudes, stereotypes, prejudice, and or discrimination that is directed towards people of African descent and rooted in their unique histories and experience of colonization and slavery here in Canada. So that definition can be found online, again, on, on the federal government's website, on the city of Toronto's website, um, and also the uh, uh, Ontario government's website and their respective plans to address uh, racism or specifically anti-Black racism. Why I like to use that definition in all my sessions is because it helps us really break down the way in which anti-Black racism operates in a, you might say, a tripartite way. So, we like to say that it's historically rooted, 
it's stereotype driven and it's institutional or systemic in nature. And so historically rooted, that part of the definition that speaks to um, the history of, of enslavement and colonization here on these lands, very few people recognize or understand that there's uh, more than two century long history of black people being enslaved on the lands now claimed by Canada. More often we hear about the story of the Underground Railroad where Canada is situated at this place of freedom for black people. But the Underground Railroad only lasted between 30 and 50 years in the story of Canada, whereas the legal enslavement, so traffic, trading, even killing, maybe disappearing black people, uh, that was allowed for two centuries. And so uh, I often like to encourage folks to think about how it is that we know so much about this, or at least have some knowledge of this 30 to 50 year period of our history, but this more than two century, 206 years from 1628 to 1834, how is it that Canadians know so little about, about this story? And so that goes to the, the, the historical piece of the definition of anti-Black racism. And then secondly, the stereotype driven nature of anti-Black racism. So uh, the thought of Black people being um, aggressive, angry, intellectually inferior, um, lazy, these range of different things that are said about Black people, what we don't uh, often take a moment and realize is that those are actually things that were circulated and spread to justify or excuse enslavement. And part of the legacy of slavery, the cultural legacy of that is that those stereotypes continue to show up within society and impact us. So all that, although that institution is gone, the way of thinking about Black people in those ways continues. And that's part of, and studies have shown, this is part of why we have disparate outcomes for Black children in, in care or, or in education or in, on the job market, or even in policing and justice system outcomes. And then finally, the institutional uh, or systemic part of the definition where we say uh, it's policies and practices that are embedded within Canadian institutions, which I articulated in the definition. This helps us move to the point of recognizing that when it comes to addressing uh, racism and specifically anti-Black racism, by and large, we're not talking about people who are uh, flaming racists or outwardly expressing racial animus. It, often we're talking about policies and practices that were developed and crystallized at a time when Black people were not a part of the conversation. They weren't part of the, the decision-making processes. Uh, they didn't influence uh, how these practices and policies came about in our organizations, agencies, institutions. Uh, and so we have to recognize that when we're talking about institutional or systemic racism, we're not talking about everyone in that organization being a racist. We're talking about these policies that can perpetuate uh, and or reinforce uh, disadvantage for Black communities. And so when we think about it in that way, it, for, for me, it depersonalizes the conversation and allows us to think more about how do we just engage in active change that is not about singling out any person or, or being lost in a feeling of helplessness because of guilt. And how do we activate change within an organization? Um, change in culture, change in policies, change in attitudes of individuals within the organization? I think I'd humbly say if I really knew the answer, I would probably be a gazillionaire. <laughs> I'm, I'm within, a, within an attempt. I think there's, there's been a, there's a lot of great folks who've been thinking through these questions for a long time. And the city of Toronto, of course, has adopted a, a, a framework for change around the Confronting Anti-Black Racism Unit and the Toronto Action Plan to Confront Anti-Black Racism. But uh, I don't think anybody really has, has the answer yet. 
But in terms of best practices that are that are gleaned, I think one of the most important things is doing doing an honest assessment of where your organization is first and foremost, so where that institution or your sector is. So that could be getting external consultants, that could be doing surveys. There are different ways of of studying that, uh, but also just looking at the uh, the outcomes and dynamics that your organization, agency, or institution is producing. I think that that creates an opportunity to be thoughtful about well, how do we change some of these dynamics, and then. Uh, developing a plan, a multi, uh, multi-pronged plan that addresses everything from hiring and promotion to data collection to uh, funding allocation to um, allocation of work. So, if we're talking about uh, workspaces in the in the law, how what is our system for making sure that everybody's getting a, an equitable opportunity to prove their skills and and grow their skills? Uh, thinking about what does pro bono work look like? Are we partnering with organizations that serve Black communities, for instance? Um, what do our, also, what do our um, client development opportunities look like? Who's getting them? How are they being uh, ushered out? And then where are they going? Are they going to spaces? Surely many organizations, when, when we could watch the Raptors, we're going to see the Raptors. Um, but also, uh, and if, why I mentioned the Raptors is, of course, it's basketball is deeply connected to Black culture, and there are many Black people involved in it. But um, by and large, when it comes to supports outside of that space, we're not always thinking about when we're purchasing art for our office. Are we are we deliberately trying to buy, buy black art? When we're looking at our website, are we making sure that we're not just tokenizing people, but we actually have enough people on our website that reflect our commitment to um, to diversity? So I, th- I think it really does. Uh, the, the the fundamental things are making sure you're honest and doing an assessment of where you are. And once you've done that, then creating a multi-pronged uh, approach that looks at the, the major points of service and, um, and function of your organization. I hope that helps. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, Anthony, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with us today. I mean, this conversation has been so important. Um, and it's it's great that we can have your insights and, and views shared with our listeners, because I know you've provided them with some really great food for thought and as well as action plans for how they can affect change in the future. So to our listeners, if you've got any questions or comments about today's podcast, p- please contact us through Faculty Ontario's webpage. And again, thank you so much to Anthony for donating his time and sitting with us to chat today. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening. We invite you to check out our website at on.facl.ca and subscribe to Fackle's newsletters and podcasts. If you have any questions, please contact us through our website. We look forward to having you join us again.